All right, uh, we are continuing Teach Us Your Word, looking at um, basically how to read and study the Bible. And, um, you know, the purpose of this class, and Craig talked about this last week, is, is to teach just basic Bible study skills. So this isn't, you know, some uh, deep dive into uh, exegesis, hermeneutics, all that, but basic Bible study skills so that we can, um, as Christian men and women, read and, and apply the Bible to ourselves, to, uh, to our own lives and um, hearts, and uh, engage more um, faithfully with Scripture, uh, derive more benefit from it as we, as we read. And so last week, Craig introduced the class, talked about just a, a simple way to um, you know, uh, apply the Bible uh, when you're reading maybe devotionally. This week we're going to dive into um, observation. So talking about, um, you know, reading and applying the Bible starts with observation. It starts with um, seeing what's there. And this might sound uh, very basic. Well, of course, you're going to gonna look and see what's there, but... Um, We'll see in a moment, often we miss what's there. So today we'll talk about observation, just the the basics of what observation looks like, how to do it. We're going to practice it a little um, little later this morning um, on at least one passage. If there's time, we'll do a second passage. I don't think there's going to be time. But let's talk, let me pray before we jump in. And then we'll, we'll talk about observation. So our Father in heaven, um, your word is a lamp to our feet. Your word is life-giving. Um, your word of truth is um, what renews us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask that you would give us understanding today, that you would help us to sharpen our, our Bible reading skills so that we might apply your word to our lives, so that your word might dwell richly in us individually and as a church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to start this morning by talking about learning to see what's there. Um, When we talk about observation, observation is just simply, you could say, looking at the book. You know, John Piper has these uh, videos called uh, look at the book where he just he has a, a text of scripture on the screen and and he just marks it up. He walks through it and he talks about it, circles things, uh, draws lines. He's looking at the book to understand what's there. What is it saying? When we talk about observation, the big question is is simply what does it say? Um, we're not yet talking about what does it mean? Um, how, how does it apply? Observation is just simply, what does it say? Uh, you, can't, you can't get to meaning, you can't get to um, how it applies if you don't know what it says. And um, so in future weeks, we're going to get into the what does it mean stage. But, but we can't skip there. We can't skip ahead to that. We're, today we're just talking about what does it say. Now, to help us think about learning to to see what it what the text says, I want you to look at this picture. 
Can anybody tell me what kind of fish this is? Now, we all know it's a fish. I wasn't going to quiz you on that. Anybody know what kind of fish? It's okay if you don't. All right, I'll tell you. It's a green sunfish. So very common freshwater fish on the East Coast. I don't think we have them um, out here in the West, or at least they're not native to this area. Um, When I was a kid in New Jersey, there was a fishing pond near my house. It was walking distance, and I often would go with my brother or a group of friends. We would get on our bikes or we'd walk over to this fishing pond and and spend a few hours um, fishing. And um, there were a lot of sunfish in this pond. What we wanted to catch were bass, largemouth and smallmouth bass. But there were a lot of sunfish, and I always regretted catching the sunfish. Does anybody know why? What's that? No, not that. I mean, we didn't want to eat any of these fish, but... um, they have these sharp spines on their dorsal fin, and if you don't, um, you know, you hook the fish and bring it in, and if you don't, if you're not careful, you get bloodied and injured. There is a way to grab the fish without getting cut, but always regretted these uh, catching these fish. Now, the point of this isn't to give you a lesson about sunfish, but it relates to this guy, Louis Agassiz. He's a scientist, Swiss-born scientist taught zoology and geology at Harvard. Um, He founded Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology, and he was a keen observer. This relates, trust me, this relates to observation. He was known for his observational skills, and he he taught an observational method to his students that several of his students wrote about later in life. And, and one of his students, um, Nathaniel Shaler, I think his last name is, wrote a little account of his first kind of encounter with Louis Agassiz. So uh, Shaler was a postgrad student, wanted to finish his training under Agassiz because of Agassiz's reputation for being such a keen observer and um, uh, a, a kind of a world class scientist. And so Shaler comes to Agassiz uh, for his first lesson, and uh, the professor sets a fish specimen down on the table in front of uh, Shaler and says, describe it. And the student looks at the fish and says, that's only a sunfish. That's why I showed you the picture of the sunfish. It's just a, a simple sunfish. I think in the story, he's talking about the freshwater sunfish. There's an ocean sunfish that looks different, different species. But he's like, that's just a sunfish. What do you want me to say? And so the student writes about the fish for nearly an hour, um, confident that he knows and has observed everything there is to um, know about this fish. And um, the professor, Agassiz, didn't return that day. And the student was a little perturbed, like, why is he wasting my time? Agassiz didn't come back for the rest of the week and just left the student with this fish on the table. Um, The student ends up spending 100 hours observing the fish, just this little dead fish on a a, um, table. And he notices all kinds of details, um, the shape of the scales, the the pattern that the scales make on the fish. Um, he, He starts observing 
the placement of the teeth and how each tooth is is almost uniquely shaped and you know minute detail and eventually uh, Professor Agassiz returns and uh, Shaler tells him all about the fish you know I've spent a hundred hours observing a fish and um, Agassiz is sitting on the end of the table listening to the student's description Agassiz is puffing a cigar taking it all in and um, after Shaler, the student, finishes with his description. Uh, the professor simply says, that's not right. And leaves him to the, to the fish and walks out. Leaves him to observe some more. And at this point in the story, the student says he's starting to catch on to uh, the professor's method. The professor's teaching him not to settle for just surface level observations, but to really... Um, pay attention to what's there. And so the student, for the next week, spends 10 hours a day observing the fish for one whole week and, and writes pages and pages of notes. And uh, Shaler says at the end of this week of, of devoting all his time to observing the fish, he was just astonished by all that he learned about this seemingly boring fish um, just simply by observing, simply by um, training himself to see what is there. And so at the end of this week, uh, Professor Agassiz comes and, and Shaler, you know, t- gives them all the, the information. And Shaler says that, you know, Shaler says about himself that he was astonished at all that he learned. He says that Professor Agassiz was simply satisfied with his findings. <laughs> But the, the reason I tell you this story is um, we often don't see what's there in the Bible because we're, we think we already know what's there. You know, many of us have been Bible readers for uh, a good length of time. We're familiar with a lot of portions of Scripture, and, and we think, well, I already know what's there. And we tend not to, to look with uh, you know, a sharper eye. We tend not to look for the, the details that maybe we've missed. We, we tell ourselves, well, I know this story, and maybe we skip over, um, thing, skip over important things. And, and maybe sometimes we're not wowed by the Bible because, because we're overly familiar with it. And so learning to read the Bible well and apply the Bible, interpret the Bible well, apply the Bible well, starts with trying to see the Bible with fresh eyes, trying to, to see what's there. And so um, let's talk about how to see what's there. I want to give you three um, just practical strategies for seeing what's there. And these are not, again, you don't have to be a, a professional theologian to do this. A- anybody can do, can do these three things. Um, it starts with reading. And you may think, well, duh. <laughs> I mean, that's obvious, right? Um, learning to see what's there starts with reading what's there. Um, I really can't underestimate the importance of, you know, if you're trying to study a passage, 
You know, uh, I, I, this happens to me when I'm preparing for a sermon. I'm so eager to get into kind of like, okay, well, what does it mean and how does it apply and how am I going to say all this in a sermon that I want to rush past just the, well, let me read the text. Let me uh, spend some time with the text. You know, we bring assumptions to the text, right? We, um, and so we can, it's not necessarily the case, but we can miss what's there. But the, the Bible rewards patient observers. You see, we're used to, um, you know, kind of soundbite news or just little, you know, um, tweets and things like that where it's like instant information, you get a little like dopamine hit and you move on. And you don't really have to think about it. You don't have to think about it. It's all just kind of right there for you to, to take in. And um, but the Bible's not like that. The the Bible is meant to be uh, pondered, read, pondered. Um, it's uh, the Bible's been described as meditation literature, not meditation in in the sense of like Eastern religions, but um, literature to be chewed on to be memorized and recited and pondered and considered. And all of that takes time. And so the the Bible really only yields up its treasures to us as we patiently read and, and observe what's there. So, you know, what would be some helpful ways, you know, I say, just read it. What what would be some helpful ways to read for understanding? Um one thing you can do is just read the passage several times. Uh, again, remember I said we're often very familiar with the text, and so even our first pass of reading, we're, we're kind of glossing over things that, that we already know. Um, you know, read it a few times to get familiar with the flow of the passage, um, with the, the content of the passage. Using multiple translations is often very helpful as you're reading multiple times. Maybe you're comparing a couple different translations because sometimes um, you'll notice that a certain word or phrase is, is um, translated differently. And it may be because that's a really important phrase. It may be because it's a, um, it's a phrase that translators have a hard time putting into English, and so they've gone about it different ways. Um, but it might, shed some, it might shed some light on an important detail. Um, also, I find, maybe, maybe this is true for you, you know, I find that because I mostly read the Bible in the English Standard Version, I'm just very familiar with how it says things. And sometimes when I open up like the NIV or the CSB or, or you know, some other translation, it just says something, uses maybe a different word, it means the same thing, but it just says it in a way that kind of strikes me, like, oh, it, it kind of woke me up out of my slump, ESV slumber. Um, so I find multiple translations helpful in that regard. And, you know, at this point, again, you're just observing. So... You might wonder, well, why did the ESV translate it this way and the NASB translated it much differently? Just note the difference and keep observing. We'll get to interpretation later. Um, But again, uh, another aspect of reading through the passage multiple times, reading it out loud. I think Craig mentioned this last week. 
Um, you know, Scripture is meant to be heard. Scripture was written to an oral culture. You, you would have somebody take the scroll and, and read it aloud to the congregation. Um, Paul's letters, um, when they were delivered, you would have a courier who, who came to the church with Paul's letter, and, and the courier or someone from the church would read the letter aloud to the congregation. I mean, think, think of what it would be like to hear the book of Romans uh, just read in one shot out loud. You know, if we just took a whole service one day and, and read the letter. You're going to catch things that you wouldn't catch just reading silently. Um, you, hearing the, the sound of the words, the maybe certain cadences in the passage um, can shed some light on it. And then just trying to, ima- as you're reading, trying to imagine the scene. Trying to, you know, especially if it's narrative, it's a little harder to do when it's um, an epistle. But if it's narrative, like one of the Gospels or, you know, Genesis, Exodus, the narratives, just trying to imagine the scene, what's going on, what, um, you know, what time of day is it if the text tells you, um, is this inside in a, in a, in a home or a tent, a tent, is this out in a field? Um, and we don't always have all those details, but a little bit of sanctified imagination while you're um, reading can go a long way. Um, also, you know, so read the passage multiple times. Another reading strategy, try reading the entire book in one sitting. I don't know if you've ever tried this with any portions of Scripture. Um, it's easier to do with something like Philippians, you know, some of Paul's shorter letters. You could read Philippians through in like 15, 20 minutes. Um, it's a little harder to do with Genesis. You know, Genesis is 50 chapters. Um, you know, Exodus, Isaiah, even the Gospels are, are it's harder, harder to do, not impossible, but you need to set aside um, some, a chunk of time. But getting a sense just from reading of the big picture. You know, we, we, even in our sermons, are typically looking at just a little slice, you know, a paragraph, maybe a few verses. Um, getting the, the big picture of the Gospel of Mark, for example. If you want to try to read a Gospel all the way through, maybe you start with Mark. It's the shortest. But, but getting, you know, from the opening, this is the beginning of, I forget exactly what he says, but uh, something of the son, gospel of the Son of God, all the way through the end to the, the women finding the empty tomb, you're going to make connections like, oh, I never, I never realized he talks about this in, in chapter 8, and then, and then he comes back to it later in, in the gospel. You'll, you'll see things that, um, you might not notice if you're just looking very detailed at, at one, two, three verses. Um, that gets into issues of context, which we're going to talk about next week. But, but again, reading the Bible in one sitting is another uh, good way to try to just read to see what's there. So reading is one one step in learning to see what's there. There's Another step, which is just asking questions. Asking questions. Um, reading the Bible well uh, entails being curious. 
being curious. Again, we're trying to fight our, or resist our tendency to um, gloss over things because of fam- familiarity. Um, and so being curious. Um, don't assume that everything's obvious. And, and again, I'm not talking, you don't have to do all this if you're just like sitting down for 10 minutes in the morning to try to read the Bible and, and receive some encouragement. You're not going to have time for all this. This is, you know, if you're, if you're spending a bit more time, maybe even studying a bit. But you want to interrogate the passage. Um, who, who knows what the journalist questions are? Yeah, Spencer would know. <laughs> Who, what, when, where, why, and how. You know, you learn these things in elementary school, but key questions. Basic questions, but um, key questions. Who, what, when, where, why, and, and how. And you might already know the answers to some of these questions when you're looking at a passage, but it's helpful to at least uh, pose them, even if you know the, answer, the immediate answer. But who's writing? You know, I'm looking at a passage. Uh, who is the author? Do I know? Does the, does the text even tell us? Um, to whom uh, is this writer writing? You know, who, who are the recipients? Do I know anything about them? Is it the church in Rome? Is it um, a group of Israelites in the desert? Is it, um, you know, who is it? Who are the main characters? Um, where is this happening? When is this happening? Um, you know, if, if there's a command, you know, if you're reading an epistle and I charge you to X, um, you might ask how. Does the text shed some light on how we're to, to fulfill this command? There's all kinds of questions, and we're going to practice. I'm not going to say a whole lot more because we're going to practice this in a, in a few moments. But asking questions, again, you might not even have the answers, but at least you're asking them. And, you know, sometimes you, you pose a question to the text and you're like, I'm not sure what the answer is. And you just note that down. That's going to be an area of uh, research for you a little later as you, you use some other tools. But you, you just you want to try to overcome the familiarity. And questions can help you do that. Um, third strategy. So you have reading. You have asking questions. You want to note the details. You want to note uh, the details. Um, sometimes seemingly minor details turn out to be a big deal in, in the Bible. And let me, let me give you an example. This is true of, of all literature. This is true of, of film. Let me give you an example from, from a film that many of you probably know and then in a little bit, I'll show you an example from Scripture. But this, this issue of seemingly minor details playing a big role. Um, the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, I know that came out a, quite a while ago. I saw that in the theater as a kid. Um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. If you know this film, um, you'll get this. If you don't know the film, sorry. But Indiana Jones, the main character in, in this uh, I think this is number, is this the fourth Indiana Jones or third? Third Indiana Jones. John and Ted were both like, that's number three. That is number three. <laughs> okay. Um, Indiana Jones, his father, his elderly father is in this, this film, um, played by Sean Connery. Um, he kind of 
you know, he's this eccentric father. He's a professor. He's kind of, you know, he, he's kind of geeky in the film. And, um, you know, early on in the film, you see his father has this umbrella with him. And all throughout the film, his father's carrying around an umbrella. And if you catch that early on in the film, you're kind of like, what's the deal with the umbrella? Is it just another, you know, clue that he's this eccentric old man? And um, later in the film, um, you know that Indiana Jones and his father are being chased by Nazi soldiers during World War II era, or maybe it's a little before. But um, they're walking, he and his father are walking on the beach, and they think, you know, okay, we've avoided the, our, our pursuers, and then all of a sudden this plane appears in the sky, and it's, a, um, it, it's piloted by some Nazi pilot. And um, the plane zeroes in on the two men, and they're just, you know, sitting ducks, it seems like. They're, on this open space, they're in this open space. Well, the father uh, doesn't run away. Instead, he, there's this flock of seagulls on the beach, and he runs toward the flock of seagulls, and he starts opening and closing his umbrella as he's running at them, and the seagulls get spooked, and, and they take off, and they all, you know, take off into the sky, and then um, some of the seagulls end up getting caught in the engines of the plane, and the plane crashes, and Indiana Jones and his father are safe and alive, and you know, that little umbrella that seemed like some eccentric little detail turns out to um, save their bacon in the, in the film. Um, so sometimes little details turn out to be a big deal. And I'm going to show you in a moment um, a, a place in Scripture where this happens. But if we're trying to note the details, what kinds of details should you note? And I have a list there for you on page 3 in your handout. Um, I'm just going to quickly mention these and then we'll try to practice with some some of them in a moment. But what kinds of things do you want to look for? Um, comparisons and, and contrasts. For example, 1 Peter 5.8, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So that, that comparison of the devil to a, a ravenous beast is is a, a good thing to note. Um, so you want to look for, you know, compa- comparisons or this is true and this is not true or this is the case, this is not the case. Um, contrast. Uh, connector words, and I'm, that's not a technical term. Technical term. We're just talking about things like conjunctions or, or words or phrases that link um, logical arguments. So, you know some of these words are important for Bible study. Therefore, we're going to come across a therefore in the sermon today. Um, I don't know what Craig's going to say about it, but it's there, and you should ask what it's there for. Um, thus, for, for this reason, because, since, so, so that. You know, all of these kind of, um, you know, either conjunctions or just words that um, connect uh, different parts of an argument. Very important. And we'll talk more about understanding the relationship between propositions in a, in a future class. Um, theologically significant words. So um, words like justification, um, grace, faith, works, um, holy or holiness, um, 
sacrifice. You know, just words, typically, you know, it's a theologically significant word because it's not one that you use in, in everyday conversation. Um, they were pretty common words at the time they were written, but they've become, you know, like justification has become a, a technical term for how, we're, how God makes us right with himself. But you want to note those words because they probably play an important role in the, the meaning and application of the passage. Um, expressions of time. You know, if you're reading a narrative, uh, those are important, you know, in the morning or in the evening or next or later that day. You know, just tr- try to understand the sequence of events. Um, geographic locations can be important, mainly in narratives. Again, Paul's letters, not, not so critical. Um, dialogue. Dialogue. So... We are accustomed to, to films where there's a lot of dialogue. Um, in, the, in the Bible's narratives, um, there's not as much dialogue, and when there is, it's typically very significant. So the, the, the author of, say, Genesis, for example, when there's, when there's characters talking either to each other or just talking, um, what they say typically is going to reveal something about what's going on inside them, either motives or their perspective on a situation, whether they're trusting the Lord or not trusting the Lord, um, rebelling or, or not rebelling. And so you just want to note who, who's speaking in this passage. Who doesn't speak is also a, a key. You know, if you have multiple characters in a scene, um, who do we never hear from? Um, that can be important. Um, how do the different characters' words compare to each other? Um, you know, this is an interesting dynamic that the gospel authors often bring out, um, especially like in, in the Gospel of Mark. You'll have the crowds who are like, you know, often very excited about Jesus in, in one scene, and then, you know, just two chapters later, they're like, let's throw him over a cliff. Um, you know, and then towards the end of the gospel, let's let's crucify him. Whereas earlier in the gospel, they're like, "Wow, we've never seen anything like this. This guy's amazing." Um, so you compare the crowd's responses to Jesus to um, his disciples' responses. They're usually um, confused. The crowds are enthusiastic. The disciples are confused. The Pharisees and scribes are antagonistic, and you can see that in in what they say. Um, repetition. So if you're writing a text to somebody and you want to emphasize something, what, what are some things you could do to, to show emphasis in your text message? Come on, I know you write text messages. All caps. And what does all caps say? Yeah, I'm yelling. I'm yelling. Uh, same is true if you use all caps in email or, or something like that. Um, yeah, so you could do all caps, you could put, um, you know, you could use a smiley emoji or something. Um, there's, there's ways visually that um, you could indicate uh, import, emphasis or importance. In, in the Bible, emphasis is, is shown through repetition. So um, sometimes you probably have this experience where you're reading, especially Old Testament, and it's kind of like, He's just saying the same thing over and over again. You know, like he just said in this previous chapter, um, here's all the names of, of the people of this tribe. And then he says it again in like two chapters later. Or, um, you know, 
these are the words that Moses spoke, and, and then you get all the words, and then you get another paragraph at the end. So these are all the words that Moses spoke, and you're like, what in the world? It's emphasis. Repetition for the sake of emphasis. Again, you have people hearing this um, for the most part, not reading. Reading is something that came much later in, in the history of God's people. You have people listening, and so a part of being a good communicate, oral communicator is repetition because there's this fire hose of words coming at you and you can only keep so many of them in your, your working memory at any given time. It's a little different when you're able to see words on a page. Um, so repetition is a way for a, a, an author, a speaker, to communicate emphasis. Um, and then physical descriptions. So, um, you know, modern literature is it has quite a bit of um, descriptive uh, description in it. You know, how a person looks, the color of their hair, the shape of their face, their, their clothing. You know, there's a lot of, of description. Um, the Bible as literature is usually pretty spare in its description of, of people and places and, and scenes. Um, the Bible typically does not go into a lot of detail about how somebody looks. And so when it does you know, oh, there, there's something important going on here. And I'm going to show you an example of this. For example, Second um, Samuel 14. Uh, this is, again, that little detail that seems maybe unimportant. Second Samuel 14, uh, re- we read about Absalom, King David's son. It says, Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his ham- handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. So remember I said the Bible typically doesn't say a lot about how somebody looks, and yet you hear this lavish description here of this young man, Absalom, uh, David's son. He has his long, thick hair. And you might kind of wonder, because if you keep reading, uh, which we will in a moment, um, you might wonder, what's going on here? Verse 26, And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. So here's this picture of Absalom. You know, I, I don't know if you're picturing maybe like one of those romance novels where you've got the, like, the, the guy with the, you know, the long flowing hair and the big muscles. I, I don't know. But... Um, but, you know, the, the author's making this big deal about his hair. Um, he's got this long hair, heavy hair. He had to cut it every year, and there was so much of it. And you're kind of like, what is going on? Why, what's this about? And you keep reading, and, um, you know, Absalom returns to Jerusalem after a little mini-exile, and he's got his eye on the throne. And you keep reading after that, and it, it kind of moves on. It's not all about how Absalom... Absalom looks, and you're like, huh, that was interesting. And then you get to chapter 18, and you know, Absalom's trying to take the throne from his father, and Absalom, you know, uh, he has a little army, and they go to battle against David's army, and they fight in a forest. And again, that's another interesting detail. It's, they're fighting in this, this forest, and we read that um, Absalom's army's losing, and he takes off on his mule, chapter 18. 
verse 9, Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. Remember that little detail, chapter 14, about Absalom's you know, gorgeous, long, thick, heavy hair? Well, later now, chapter 18, it, it, it contributes to his downfall. His hair gets stuck in the branches of this uh, oak tree, and he's just hanging there, you know, swinging by his hair. And if you know the story, um, it doesn't end well for him, does it? Uh, I think it's Joab comes comes along and uh, runs him through with a spear. Uh, so, little detail that that maybe seemed unimportant and um, later turns out to be actually somewhat significant. Um, also, um, maybe his good looks gave him a, an air of superiority. And, um, you know, so there's all kinds of things that could be going on there with um, that emphasis on his hair. But, so how do you see, how do you learn to see what's there? You read, you, you ask questions, and you note details. And uh, one last thing is just mark up. The text. Now, I have an aversion to writing in my Bible. I used to write in my Bible when I was a new Christian, and then several years later I'd go back and look at what I wrote, and I thought, that was absolutely ridiculous, and I'm embarrassed by what I wrote. And so I have a tendency not to write in my Bible anymore. Um, you can print out the text and just mark it up. Mark it up. Circle things. Um, draw lines connections between ideas, underline, whatever. Um, I know like in, in the um, inductive Bible study method, there's little symbols you can use for different, you know, different, they represent different things. Um, that gets to be a little too much for me. I just kind of mark things up. Um, but I find the reading, the asking questions, noting details, it's really hard for me to do all that in my head. And so getting, you know, something on paper um, is very helpful to me. Um, you, you could use you know, a tablet if you have a tablet. Um, but just mark it up. You know, if, if you want, you know, go to BibleGateway.com and you can uh, look up Bible verses in a million different, tran- not really a million, but many different translations. You can print them out, copy-paste, whatever you need. Um, but you, know, you want to involve as many of your senses as possible. You want to hear, you want to see, you want to move, you know, your hands um, as much as you can. So that is um, some theory about observation. What I want to do next is um, actually try some of this with you, um, practice some of this with you. Did you notice how I chose the part of the passage that Craig's going to be preaching on today? But I'm not going to say anything about what any of those marks mean. Um, I just was looking at the passage and was like, that's interesting, circle. Oh, that's interesting, underline. There's, there's not a whole lot of meaning to it. But um, let, let's practice uh, observing a text. Now, in, in a class like this where we're limited on time, I had to pick something short. So we're going to look at Romans 12, um, 1 and 2. And then if we have time, we might look at another passage, but no promises. Uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Let me, let me read these for you. They're also, the two verses are printed on your handout. 
Um, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So, familiar verses. Uh, let me let me show verse one on here again. Um, you know, most of us have probably read these two verses at least at least ten times. Um, we're somewhat familiar with them, but um, what would it look like to to practice these steps and? We'll skip the multiple readings. I mean, I'm pretty sure you don't want to sit here listening to me just read the passage again and again. Um, We'll skip ahead to the question phase. You know, I'll show you a few things that I would do with this passage, and then I want to give you a chance. Um, But if I was looking at these verses, you know, I might say like, oh, um, I, you, and brothers... You know, if we're asking who is speaking and who and to whom, or who is writing and to whom um, is he writing, uh, those words right there would clue me into something. Who who is the I? Who is now? You know, because you know who wrote Romans. Who wrote Romans? We've been preaching Romans for several weeks. I hope you know. If you're if you were a Sunday school kid, Sunday school student, you'd say Jesus, and you'd be close, but not quite. Um, <laughs> Paul, the Apostle Paul. Um, and how do you know that? You'd know if you started at Romans chapter one, and he says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I, and then I'd say, okay, he's he, he's talking to you and brothers. And if I was asking, is this the audience for this letter? Are they are they Christians or non Christians? Um, well, I, I know from just looking at the text, brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, well, he's, he's speaking to a Christian congregation here. He's writing to a group of Christians. Um, you know, uh, is he writing to an individual or to a group? Again, what do we know just from looking at the text? Well, brothers is plural, right? Brothers and sisters is plural. He's talking to a group. Uh, where and when, maybe not so important. Um, I might ask, well, what is the author communicating? So there's different things. You know, he might just be giving some information. Um, Is the author um, giving a description of something? Is the author, is he commanding them to do something? And I'd say, oh, I see some key words in there. I appeal to you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And so I'm just noting here, Okay, the author is is commanding his his hearers or giving instruction to his hearers um, about something they ought to do. So again, it's not this profound insight, but it it, it shapes what I'm going to expect the passage to be doing and saying. Um, this is instruction. It's it's aiming at action as opposed to just. Um, a description of a city or something like that. Um, and then I might ask, well, well, why? So the author, Paul, says to these Christian readers, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I might ask, well, why? Why should, why should his readers do that? And I notice, oh, okay, there's, 
There's one of those connector words, right? Therefore. So that, that probably plays some role in, in the motivation or the rationale for, for presenting your body as a living sacrifice. Uh, by the mercies of God, that little prepositional phrase there, again, I might not know what any of that really means, but I know like, okay, that's, somehow that's related to why, the, the basis for, um, for presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, I've been doing a lot of talking. I want to give you a chance. Let's just start with verse 1. Asking questions. You know, journalist questions. Again, we're not trying to interpret at this point yet. We're just trying to observe what's there. What are some questions? And you can just shout these out. You know, they should be short. Um, What are some questions you might ask as you look at verse 1? We'll look at verse 2 in a moment. Go ahead, John. Yeah, so he says, I appeal to you, therefore, so therefore is, you know, raising a question in your head. What, what has he already said that would lead him to, to say this now? So that, that's very important, especially reading Paul's letters. Uh, what other kinds of questions? Remember the journalist questions. Who, what, where, when, why, how? Piper. Why is he telling them to do this? Yeah, that's a great question. And you might look at the passage and be like, I don't know yet. But, but you're trying to figure out, um, Paul probably isn't just saying things because he's got nothing else to say. <laughs> you know, why is he telling them to do this? That's a great question. Kevin. Yeah, so what, you know, I, this phrase, he tells them, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What is that? <laughs> Uh, I wrote that down. What does that look like? Um, yeah, so that 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 actually you know sets you up for doing interpretation in in a little bit. Is I don't understand this, or or that's really interesting, and I want to explore that some more. What is a living sacrifice? Uh, maybe what are a couple other questions you might ask? How? Yeah, how do I present? Uh, my body as a living sacrifice. Um, yeah. And then, you know, if we're noting theologically significant words, what are some words that stand out to you here in verse 1? Holy. Sacrifice. Spiritual. Spiritual worship. God is a pretty significant theological word, <laughs> um, but a very uh, common one. Um, but it is significant, he's saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. To God. Okay, uh, verse 2, which continues Paul's thought, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. And he goes on, what are, what, you know, if we're just asking questions at this point, what are some questions you might ask? Barbara, go ahead. Okay, what is it, like, what does that mean? Or, yeah, what does that mean? What is test, the testing? What does that mean? What's that about? Um, what else? Kevin? Yeah, yeah, there's an important contrast. The do not, but. Uh, that, that's, you know, helpful to understand what does it mean not to be conformed 
to this world? Well, it has to do with your mind being transformed. What is your mind being transformed? What's that all about? Well, somehow it's related to not being conformed to this world. The contrast is is a big deal. Um, what, What else? I kind of answered it, but the how. How do I not be conformed to this world? By the transforming um, of, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Um, why? why? Why should I, you know, seek to have a, a transformed, renewed mind? Piper, go ahead. Is what? Is repeated. Yeah. Okay, so holy is not repeated, but you have some different words that, that show up. Um, you know, I would ask, are, are the words good, acceptable, perfect? Are, are those just like different descriptions of God's will? Are they, this is starting to get into ter- interpretation, and I wouldn't answer it yet. Are these like different levels of God's will? You know, there's a good will, there's an acceptable will, there's a perfect will. Um, you know, again, you might think it's a dumb question, but it might actually help you get at um, the, the meaning later. Um, we mentioned the comparison, contrast. What are some theologically significant words here? Uh, yeah, will of God is big. This world, that, that phrase, you know, um, is pretty pretty big if you know in the broader context of scripture um mind even is in this case i I think a theologically significant word um you know there's there's a lot you could say well it's all important (laughs) and and to some degree it is but you're asking questions asking questions um we have a few moments do you want to try another passage it's brief and it's a different it's not a pauline epistle uh jonah chapter one Jonah chapter 1. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3. Um, let me read it. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Um, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it, the boat, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, if I'm looking at, at these verses, um, especially, you know, just, okay, start with the first two verses. Um, there's some dialogue that stands out to me right away. Remember I said, note, note details, dialogue. Who is speaking here? The Lord. And it's not a long speech, right? Uh, quite simple, go to Nineveh, right? So there's, there's dialogue. Remember I said note details. Dialogue's important. Uh, there's a geographic location here. And um, I, I'm saying that's important because you know what the rest of the verses say. So I'm saying, okay, God is speaking to whom is he speaking? He's speaking to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And what does he tell him? He says, get up and go. And go to this particular place, Nineveh, which from Jonah's location in northern Israel, Nineveh is far to the east. Is to the east. 
But we read in the the next verse, in verse 3, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, another location, and found a ship going to Tarshish. And then we read again, So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. So we've got, um, we've got several things going on here. Um, we've got locations. Remember I said that's important. We've got repetition. What do you know? Okay, so God says go to Nineveh. What do you know about Tarshish? Yeah, it's the opposite direction. God says go this way. Jonah says nope and goes as far this way as he can. And, and the, the author here, He's giving us all caps. He's shouting here. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. And then he went down to Joppa, which is on the the Mediterranean coast, so that he could get in a ship going to Tarshish. Hey, reader, did I tell you where Jonah's going? He's going to Tarshish. (laughs) That's the author's way of saying, hey, this is really important. This is going to play a big role in the rest of the story. You know, if, if we were just looking at verses 1 and 2, we might think, okay, the book of Jonah is going to be a story about a prophet going to a pagan city and, and telling them to repent. Now, does that happen in the story? It does, right? It does later. But before Jonah ever gets to Nineveh, he hightails it or tries to hightail it to Tarshish, and there's there's something like pretty interesting that happens, right? What happens before Jonah gets to Tarshish? Yeah, there's that whole story of of the the fish, the giant fish, the storm, the giant fish. Jonah gets thrown overboard, gets swallowed by a fish, spends three days, three nights in in the belly of the fish. Um, so right here at the beginning. The, the author is, is drawing our attention to the fact that, that God tells Jonah to do one thing and Jonah goes the opposite direction. Um, what are some other, besides the, the location, what are maybe some other you know, key words or, or just questions that, that you might ask or, or things to note in verse 3? Even if you weren't sure, like, well, maybe maybe Jonah is going to Tarshish first because he wants to preach to them, how would you know that's probably not the right conclusion? Yeah, flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, which he uh, repeats at the end of the verse. He goes to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And so even without knowing a ton about you know, ancient Near Eastern geography, and even if you haven't read further in the book yet, you're already getting oriented to, just by observing, you're already getting oriented to maybe a key theme in the story is, is Jonah's attempt to um, run away from God's calling, from, from God's will, from... And, and we don't know why yet. We don't, you know, we have to keep reading to, to figure that out. But um, can you see how just trying to pay attention to what, what is there can actually um, yield a lot of insight? So, you know, our temptation with Jonah 1, 1 through 3 is to just jump into like all the theological 
you know, questions, nuances, and maybe we, we miss the point, or we get all hung up on the, the question of the, the fish and what kind of fish and how could somebody survive in the fish's belly, and we're like, and we miss, wait, uh, the big point of Jonah is not the fish. It probably has something to do with, with Jonah um, saying, Lord, <laughs> I, I'm paraphrasing here, Lord, not going to do that. I'm out of here. <laughs> And, and run in the other way. So, observation. Uh, again, can't stress how important just basic um, reading skills are to to understanding and applying the Bible and and trying to to resist that the familiarity that we have with Scripture that that kind of lulls us to sleep when we read it. Um, trying to see with fresh eyes what's there. So my encouragement to you for uh, this week is maybe to try to practice some observation. Pick pick a passage. Maybe it's your favorite verse. Maybe it's a, a, a chapter you, don't, you know nothing about. But pick a passage and um, just do what we've talked about. Read it multiple times. Ask questions. Note the details. Mark it up. Write down questions that you have that you weren't able to answer and just you're just trying to see what's there and and to also get a a sense of what am I having a hard time seeing what's not clear to me but you just you just want to see and and next week we're going to talk about um, context so um, moving from you know looking at maybe two verses to let's zoom out a little bit and see what's on either side of those verses. What you know, these verses are part of a paragraph. The paragraph's a part of a chapter. The chapter's a part of a book. And and we'll look at how paying attention to context can help us better understand um, the Bible. So that's all for um, this week. And actually, I'll give you one other piece of homework. While Craig's preaching today. You've got, um, you've, you have Romans 8, 1 through 11 printed in your bulletin. Maybe just mark it up while he's preaching. Try to, you know, uh, mark up what's important or maybe what he draws your attention to. Or um, you could even practice it while he's, he's preaching. And then he's going to be annoyed because nobody's looking at him. Everybody's looking down at, at their, uh, at their uh, bulletin. But, but if you tell him, it's because I was trying to really pay attention to what you were saying, he'll be encouraged. All right. Let me, let me pray, and we'll be done for this morning. Our Father in heaven, um, we give you thanks for your word, and, and we do desire to be, um, we desire to read your word well. We desire not only to fill our minds with information, but to have our hearts strengthened, encouraged, um, built up by your word. We, we long to be established in your grace, to be grounded in your truth, to be shaped and formed by your gospel. And and we know that a a lot of that happens, Lord, through hearing and reading your word well. And so help us to become uh, skilled readers of your word, skilled observers of what's there. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.